this is my community, this is my home. And that's something that I think is really, really beautiful and, and really wonderful that they've set up the community in this way where it's not viewed as transitional housing. It's not supposed to be a stepping stone to help people get back on their feet and get into some other quote unquote normal living situation. Like this is, this is the community that people want to be in and want to stay in. Hello and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Today, I'm really excited to be talking with design architect, impassioned activist, and Austin-based design for equity leader, Shelby Blessing. She'll be sharing with us stories from Community First Village in Austin, a 51-acre master plan community that provides affordable, permanent housing and supportive community for men, women coming out of chronic homelessness. This is an inspiring example for anyone that hasn't heard of it, and there's so much to learn, and I just really can't wait to dive in. Thank you so much for joining us, Shelby. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So I just wanted to start with, what is your earliest memory of even being aware that architecture or design exists as a field and how it kind of impacts you? Yeah, great question. I think I'll skip the normal Lego example that <laughs> a lot of architects cover. Well, and I think I think one of the first times I remember really thinking about it as a profession was I think I was in seventh grade and we were having this medieval fair at our school and each person had to choose what their medieval profession would be um, and and take on that role at the fair. And there was this other girl who I thought was really cool who chose to be an architect so that she could design a medieval castle as her project for the medieval fair. And I was like, well, that sounds great. That's a fun project. (laughs) So I became a medieval castle architect in seventh grade. And and I think it sort of planted (laughs) the seed in my head that that was a profession that I could choose. And I think the more I thought about it later on, I realized it combined a lot of different interests that I had. I was really interested in art, but really good at math and kind of liked the interdisciplinary nature of architecture and the fact that it requires a lot of really different and sometimes conflicting skill sets. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Oh my God. I just like see the cute little Shelby blessing, like seventh grader being like, Uh, Can you tell us about some of the origins of the Community First Village project and how you first got involved? Yeah, so I first got involved with Community First Village back in 2014 through a design competition that AIA Austin put on called Tiny Victories. So Community First Village is a master plan community east of Austin that houses formerly chronically homeless individuals. And it was started by a nonprofit here in Austin called Mobile Loaves and Fishes that has mm-hmm. been working with the homeless population in Austin for over two decades. And they, for a long time, had really focused on taking food out to people on the streets. And they have these food trucks that drive around the city and they, they still do this. They have a lot of volunteers who go out on truck runs and they take food and deliver it to people on the streets who are in need. And over the years, um, Alan Graham, who's the founder of Community First Village, I think he really saw that they were treating the symptoms of homelessness, but they weren't necessarily addressing the root causes or helping 
you know, change the system. And so they really started, you know, they had built a lot of relationships with people in that process. And they started sort of on an individual level, working with a few of the homeless folks that they had met and helping them get into, I think at the time it was mostly in RV parks or trailer homes and trying to get them off the street and housed, just kind of ad hoc, one-on-one working with individual people. Mm -hmm. And that was great kind of on an individual level at the start. But the thing that they were seeing was when they did that, they were pulling someone out of the community that they had built on the street and the social support network that they had and putting them in a community where suddenly they didn't know anybody, they didn't have any relationships or resources. And a lot of times that didn't last. And so really their vision for Community First Village was to do that on a much bigger scale where they could actually build that community and that support network at the village. Design-wise, it started from that same concept too, where they said, okay, we're going to build an RV park on steroids, which was kind of the model that they had been working in. Um, But as they got a little further along, they realized that there was a real value to actually bringing in architects and designers and asking asking us to help them design homes that would feel special and feel permanent and and really create a special place and a home. Um, I think the the RVs were useful in a lot of ways because they provided for a lot of needs, but they they have the drawback of appearing very transitional because they've got <laughs> wheels and they look like they could drive away anytime. And so they they've really adapted their model over the years to focus a lot more on you know, creating a permanent community, creating a space that's that's special and where, where the residents who move in feel like they can stay there as long as they want and that it's not temporary or transitional. Oh, that's wonderful. So can you kind of paint a picture for us of what this looks like? Sure. So so at Community for Silch, it's honestly hard to describe. And even in a photo, it's hard to get a sense of it. I really recommend anyone who's anywhere near Austin, Texas, just go take a tour, see it for yourself because it's total. It's yeah. a totally different experience in person. So the village is kind of about half of it started with the RV park, and so it's it's a mix of RV homes. But over over the years, they've started to use, switch to park model RVs and more permanent models that have built on porches and everything. And then the other side is all tiny homes. So it's a whole village of about 150 tiny homes in phase one. And there's also a second phase that's been constructed since sure we'll talk more about that. But the tiny home area includes this hugely eclectic variety of different home designs. And five of those home designs that are repeated many times in phase one of the village all came out of the AIA design competition. There are a variety of other ones as well. Some from the architects who've been working on the site plan, some from different architecture firms who approached and said they wanted to help and contribute a home. And a lot of them did the design and, you know, raised money for the materials and helped build it. Mm-hmm. And then there are also a mix in the phase one of some some tents that they call canvas-sided cottages that are like kind of a large Mm -hmm. double-layered tent and some Mm -hmm. that were these ones called easy logs that were kind of a Lincoln Logs kit of parts that volunteers could put together easily, which is something they experimented with early on and have since moved on from. So it's this kind of wild mix of different (laughs) choices. And one of the really great things is that when somebody moves into Community First Village, they get to tour several different houses and pick the one that meets their needs. And so the variety is really 
useful because everybody's different. Everybody has different priorities and goals for their home. And so that choice Mm -hmm. is offered to residents immediately when they move in, that they get to choose the house that, that, you know, either speaks to their personal style or where they want to be located on site or how much storage or how public or private they want their house to be. You know, Mm -hmm. all of those choices are available and it's, you know, for people coming out of homelessness, they often haven't gotten to make many choices while they're homeless. They're often being pushed from place to place or told they're not allowed to be somewhere and their choices are very limited. And so I think that's something that's really amazing is that just the design of the village offers that choice right away. Right. I just, I feel like there's so many, like there's just a countless number of things that make what you guys are doing so unique. And I feel like one of the critical parts of kind of, you know, human dignity is the the ability to choose what you want, who, Uh who you are and be able to have your place to honor and dignify your own needs for that, you know, part of your life. You know, one of the things that I have loved is how you guys talk about um, healthy communities and how, you know, there's a core component of what you're thinking about. And I think, of course, choice is a key piece of that. Like, what are some of the other pieces, both in the community overall, but also like thinking about, you know, in the tiny victories, what was leading you know, some of you guys' core design principles and considerations. Can you sort of paint that picture for us? Yeah. When I first got involved, I didn't really know any of that. I saw a call for designs from AIA <laughs> and I had a coworker who actually a coworker saw it first and approached me and said, Hey, here's this design competition. It sounds really cool. Do you want to be on a team? And so we put together a team and you know, and really we were working with pretty limited information, which was the design brief yeah. that we got for the competition that said, you know, okay, you're designing a microhome for one individual, someone who's experienced chronic homelessness. It should be under 200 square feet, have no kitchen or bathroom because those are in shared facilities on site. So it's really just the kind mm-hmm. of bedroom and living space for one person. And originally we were designing them to not have any plumbing or air conditioning either, um, Mm -hmm. which is something that has evolved over time too. I think everyone's realized maybe in Texas, we should all have air conditioning (laughs) (laughs) or or a tiny house might not be able to fully engage the passive strategies we would need if we didn't want air conditioning. Um, So we started with that design brief and it was something that my team designing had a lot of discussions about because None of us had experienced homelessness. You know, we're designing for a somewhat generic, abstract client who we haven't gotten to talk to and don't have that personal experience ourselves. And so we had a lot of conversations about what did that mean? What would be a good home for somebody? Um, And, you know, for our team, we really came down on the idea of choice that we've already talked about, about making Mm -hmm. sure that the house provided the basic needs, but also making sure that the house left some options and some flexibility so that somebody could come in with their own ideas and interests and, and continue to evolve the house to meet their needs. Um, But I think in many ways, the, you know, the key considerations for what makes a good home for someone who's experienced homelessness, it's not any different from what makes a good home for you or I, you know, it's a place where you have comfort, you have security, you have the ability to 
lock the door if you want and decide who gets to come in and out of your space. It's a place for all your belongings and to sort of express who you are and your interests. And so one of the things that I think really influenced our team during that process was that we, because we were in Austin, we got to come and do a site tour and hear Mm -hmm. from, from Alan Graham, the founder of Community First Village about his goals for the homes. And one of the things he shared were um, these eight characteristics of home that came from a book called Beyond Homelessness, where it really outlined, you know, some of those intangible aspects of, you know, permanence, personal expression, Mm -hmm. um, belonging and identity, all of these things that a house does for us, that's a lot more than just mm-hmm. a roof over your head and a shelter from the weather. And so that yeah. was uh, every team that was in Austin that was in, entering the competition had that in mind. And um, non-coincidentally, I think in a national blind juried competition, all of the winning designs that were selected ended up being teams from Austin. I don't think that's because Austin is just better designers than everyone. I think it's because we got an extra piece of information that wasn't in the design brief that really encouraged us to think beyond just shelter and really think about how do you make a house a home. Nice. Oh, that's wonderful. So if you just pluck somebody out that they're losing that social connection, they're losing that support network, how have you seen um, the design of Community First and also, you know, the programming and how it's how it's um, embodied each day? Like, how have you seen that focusing around human connection and the creation of community? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that are kind of baked into the design of the homes and the design of the site that are really there to encourage connection and community. Um, mm-hmm. So one is that the tiny houses we're all required to have a front porch and and really with that idea that you know part of what makes a great community or a great neighborhood is neighbors sitting out on their porches talking to people as they walk by and sort of building that web of relationships in a neighborhood mm-hmm. and so that was in the original design brief was that every house you know there was a limit on square footage but every house was required to have a front porch that faced the main pedestrian pathways that go through the neighborhood Mm -hmm. to really encourage those connections. And that was something that my team took to the extreme. We actually broke the rule on how much porch area we were allowed to have and made a super (laughs) huge porch because we felt like that was a, you know, a really big priority was to create that space that could be more than just sitting out with a chair, but actually a space for hosting or for, you know, a a job or a hobby or other activities. So that's one thing. And then you know, I mentioned that the houses don't have kitchens or bathrooms. So in the tiny home area of the community, everyone has shared outdoor kitchen facilities where they can cook and mm-hmm. eat and share meals together. And so I think that really helps to encourage connection in those neighborhoods. A lot of those connections take place over food and over shared meals. Yes. And so the fact that a lot of that cooking is happening together helps to encourage that. Um, same yeah. with the bathrooms to some degree, I think less so, but you can imagine if you're going there, brushing your teeth yeah. every morning, you run into the same people over and over again. And it's sort of those, you know, informal acquaintances that build into yeah. friendships and relationships over time. So that helps to support. But that's super cool. And so two questions. One is what are the communal spaces like? And number two is, you know, you had mentioned little kind of neighborhoods and I'm wondering how many people or homes make up those neighborhoods? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think in phase one, the definition of neighborhoods came a bit after the fact. And so 
but mm-hmm. um each i think it's kind of defined by street or they're they're they don't have roads going to all the tiny homes it's more pedestrian pathways that go there but all of the homes that are kind of on each of the same pathways have house numbers that start with the same number. So the way that they talk about mm-hmm. it in the community is somebody will say, oh, I live in the 600s or I live in the 700s based on the address of their home. Mm-hmm. And everybody who lives in the 600s actually has a shared council member that's on their community council. So they have their own kind of local, very hyper-local government that has a community yeah. council member for each of those little mini neighborhoods that represents the residents in their area and helps to make decisions for the community. Um, so that's that's one thing. It is something that I've been part of some evolving conversations with Community First Village about planning for their future growth. And it's something that in the future, they're looking to be a lot more intentional about really defining the scale of a neighborhood and thinking about, you know, as they look at scaling up the community they have and or starting some additional communities to help serve more people as they scale suddenly the ability to be a community really changes you know in the past when they only had Mm -hmm. 300 people total living there they were about reaching the limit of how many people could all know one another and so it's more and more important as they grow to really really lean on the unit of the neighborhood to be the place where those relationships are formed first within a larger Mm -hmm. community and so we did a lot of work with them, you know, kind of thinking around how that works in their community, how that works in other communities. Quick question is, there space for families or is this basically meant for single residents? Like, what's what's like sort of the range of what you guys see? Yeah. So for most of so for most of the residents who are formerly homeless, the the, the micro homes are all for one individual. There are mm-hmm. some who have either come in couples or developed couples since they've moved in. <laughs> and so for those, they, they usually end up moving into one of the RVs, which has a little more space mm-hmm. to accommodate, um, or keeping two tiny houses. And I think there's a range of couples on site who've made different choices around that. And then there are some families as well. About 10% of the folks who live at Community First Village have never experienced homelessness and are instead choosing to live at Community First Village to kind of be in service to their neighbors um, and kind of be there to help support the community. And that includes a lot of families with young children. And so that's something that um, I think the village design so far partially accommodates those, but it's something that as they're looking to the future, one of the things they are talking about for future phases is to figure out how they can actually better accommodate families. And if they need a housing type they don't have yet, that that would make it even easier for those families. In order to qualify to live at Community First Village, they have to be chronically homelessness, which is defined by either repeat experiences of homelessness or duration Mm -hmm. of homelessness. And Mm -hmm. they also have to have two qualifying disabilities, which includes Mm. a range of sort of physical, mental, and substance abuse issues. And mm-hmm. and so the, the community that Community First Village is serving is among like the most vulnerable, yeah. chronically homeless population. Um, and that's mm-hmm. actually typically not families. There is also an yeah. issue with, you know, family homelessness, but that's not the community that Community First Village yeah. primarily serves. And it's something yeah. that they acknowledge. There are other organizations that are better equipped to serve those families experiencing homelessness. And right now that's not them. And so their focus has been on 
you know, individuals experiencing chronic homelessness, a lot of whom are older, um, are struggling with a wide variety of issues that, have, you know, disability yeah. issues or um, medical issues, things like that. And so that's the community that they've really focused on. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think it's important to know your niche and be able to serve them well, which it you know, very clearly sounds like that's happening. I was wondering, what are some of the lessons learned that you would say both apply to as a Community First Village grows, but also other similar types of um, villages in the future? I was part of this original design competition, um, not really knowing much about Community First Village when I got started with that. Through that ended up, um, the design that my team did was one of five that got selected to be built in phase one. So I ended up working a lot with the builders, coming out on site, volunteering with some of the teams um, that mm -hmm. were that were out there to help build the houses. And then also got involved with AIA Design Voice, which is the committee at AI Austin that had put on the competition. So I decided I wanted to learn more about them, get more involved, and and help continue that relationship of their work with Community First Village. And so in the process, I ended up, you know, a year or so after phase one had started construction and people had moved in and all of that, I was walking around the site with a staff member and hearing just really amazing anecdotal evidence about um, hearing from her about when they gave residents the choice of which home to move into, which homes tended mm -hmm. to get chosen first and why and oh. you know I, I was like very very fascinated with this because yeah. as architects we don't often have the opportunity to go back and evaluate our designs and every time we do a design yeah. we're making a hypothesis about what yes. the best solution to the problem is but we don't always go back to see the results of the experiment and see if our hypothesis was correct or not and so this was yeah. a really interesting microcosm opportunity to do that, not just with projects where, you know, the time from design through construction to occupation happened really quickly, but also we had a lot of different architects all on the same site trying to solve the same problem in different ways. And so yeah. I, with AIA Design Voice, helped initiate a post-occupancy study to go back and interview residents from phase one. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we interviewed 20 different residents and we tried to get at least two each um, from the major housing types on site so that we could mm -hmm. kind of get a cross section of their experience and, and did hour long interviews with them, asking a whole bunch of questions about the individual micro home design, but also about the larger community design and really trying to answer the question of how well the built environment at Community First Village was serving the needs of its residents and then yeah. giving that feedback to Community First Village. And the, the timing of when we were doing this was when they had um, gotten the adjacent property and were making plans to expand into phase two, but hadn't put a shovel in the ground yet. So it was really perfect timing oh, for us perfect. to go back, learn from phase one, and help share that feedback back to them to influence some of the design decisions for phase two and help them iterate on all the great work that they were doing. So for the houses, it was, we ended up with, you know, from, from all these interviews, we ended up doing some pretty robust qualitative data analysis on all of the interview nice. transcripts and pulling out a bunch of different conclusions that we made specific recommendations to Community First Village on. And in the houses, mm -hmm. we had 
things ranging from the very functional aspects of, you know, how well does the heating and cooling work? How well does the home provide security for a resident? How well does it meet their needs in terms of, you know, cooking and preparing food, which residents actually do in their homes much more than was originally anticipated, I think. I mean, the biggest overriding one, first of all, was that the things that matter in a tiny home for a formerly chronically homeless person are the same Mm -hmm. as the things that matter in your home and my home and everyone who's listening to this. You know, the things that you think are important to you are also important for someone who has recently come out of homelessness. And some of those, though, might have been missed by designers in phase one. So a really obvious one is that a lot of the homes in phase one were not designed with very much storage. And maybe there was an Mm -hmm. assumption that if someone was experiencing homelessness, they didn't have a lot of stuff. Um, Not true. They all have a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And and once they have a place to put stuff, they get more stuff, Um, which is true of all of us too. Of all people. I was like, uh, definitely too much stuff in their house, (laughs) trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, and so that was an immediate lesson learned was that the houses really needed to better accommodate storage and really think about mm-hmm. all of the different types of storage too. Another one that was a really interesting one that came out was that for the houses that had a screened porch, that screened porch mm-hmm. was providing a huge amount of benefit that was really unique to yeah. those homes. And so you know, part of it is that once you screen in a porch, it becomes lockable and that does give you outdoor storage space. It also seemed to change kind of the ownership and privacy and created this intermediate space that's not the public way, but allows you to interact with it, but really claim and feel is your own. And so the screen Mm -hmm. porches were really helpful in that way. And then also a lot of the tiny homes by nature of being tiny are only one room. And so in, in the ones that had a screened porch or there's one design in phase one that has actually a rooftop porch um, and there's mm. there's one that's a dog trot that has two separate rooms. All of those ones that had more than one space were really, really useful yeah. because it allows a resident to make one space more private, one space more public um, and be able to yeah. control who they let in and how far they let them into their personal space. Um, And it also Mm -hmm. gave an opportunity for residents to host visitors, which was something that maybe wasn't thought about too much in design either. Um, Mm -hmm. We heard some stories even about residents who were inviting overnight guests who were currently homeless to come experience a night in Community First Village and see what it was Mm -hmm. like, which was a really, really amazing thing to hear about of how they were kind of paying forward what they had gotten through moving into the village and helping that for their friends who were still on the street. Um, And so... It was really cool to hear which houses were able to help accommodate some of those goals as well. Oh, it's very cool. Um, so then what about for the larger sort of um, community level? Yeah, at the community level, there are, I haven't talked yet about the community spaces that exist on site, but they do have mm-hmm. kind of a variety of different community spaces, a lot of which are focused on providing services to the residents or providing job opportunities for residents as well. And we heard a lot of really great feedback about how important those job opportunities were to residents, you know, partially for income, partially for a thing to do, but also really important to the fabric of the community and building those relationships. And so an example is one of the folks that I interviewed 
works in the community garden there and they have they have a big community garden in the center of the village and they also have a farmer's market where the produce that's grown in the garden is available free for neighbors in the village to come and access Mm -hmm. fresh healthy produce and so um, this neighbor who works in the garden told me about how that you know, his best friendships on site were with his coworkers, where he spends all day, mm. you know, working in the garden together with them, working at the farmer's market. And, you know, those relationships that are built over time, just through proximity and shared experience yeah. were so important. And the job opportunities really, really helped with that. So that was, I think, a really great confirmation of a decision that Community First Village had made early on to provide those opportunities for residents. I love it. You know, you phrased it so well when you're like, you know, we're always making a hypothesis in all of our designs, but how often do we go back and examine whether our hypothesis proved true? Um, And I think that's, that's why you do it. Um, And just, oh, that is so cool. Well, I learned, I learned in the process, part of why we don't, I remember when we first started, I said, why aren't architects doing this more? Why aren't we doing a better job at going back and doing this research and understanding how things worked out. And I learned Mm -hmm. in the process that the reason maybe we don't do it is that it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time (laughs) and a lot of effort. And it's not part of our normal design services. It's not part of our normal contracts and fees. And so we don't often Mm -hmm. have a good mechanism to do this work. Um, In this case, we were able to do it with a team of volunteers. We had 10 volunteers through AIA Design Voice that was a mix of architects from different firms and actually a few students from the UT School of Architecture as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we had a lot of volunteers put in a lot of volunteer hours. um, And without that, we wouldn't have been able to do this project. So I certainly want to share credit to all of them for the great work that they did, but also acknowledge that a lot of times that's out of reach for our normal design projects. And so that's a big question I'm continuing to ask in my career is, you know, what's the light version of that that we can do more often? Or how do we convey the value to clients so that we can make that yeah. part of our standard services, especially for clients who are doing repeat building types and could really benefit from that research of their own buildings? 100%. What has been happening with everything that's going on right now with COVID? What what have you guys learned? Yeah, it's been really amazing to see the ways that they've adapted. And in some ways, they didn't actually have to adapt as much as many communities would because they already were set up pretty well for social distancing. Um, totally. All of the tiny homes are standalone structures that don't share air with the surrounding buildings. And so and are separated by a lot of open air circulation. And so just that basic fact of the community has made it really easy for them to keep all of their residents safe. Um, and then even some of their bigger community spaces, their their biggest main gathering space is called Unity Hall. And it's a building that's central um, within the community that has a big multi-purpose room space that kind of serves as their sanctuary, also a big community gathering room. They do different um, events and markets and things in that space. Um, And that space has giant roll-up doors, is connected to a breezeway Mm -hmm. with a huge fan. And so a lot of their spaces, I think, already have a lot of indoor-outdoor connection and great air circulation. And that was Mm -hmm. part of their community from day one. Um, Yeah probably for multiple reasons. One, it's 
cheaper to you take advantage yeah. of the outdoor space than it is to put it all inside. Um, two, they have residents who historically have spent a lot of time outside and might not always be comfortable immediately feeling closed in and like they don't have an out. And so that's something they're really sensitive to and design is kind of creating layers of how far people choose to step in and, and letting yeah. there be ways to kind of sidle up without having to fully be engaged and letting residents choose exactly how engaged to be. And so the design supports that. Um, yeah. And then they have, during COVID, they've installed stations throughout the village where they've installed extra hand washing stations um, because as mentioned, not all the houses have plumbing, they have shared bathroom facilities. And so in order to have more frequent places to wash hands, they put extra kind of sanitation stations throughout the village. They also really shut down um, visitor access to the site really early. So they a lot of their volunteer activities and tours and all of the ways they had been inviting other people onto the site They've really, really limited that during COVID so that people are really only going to the site if they have a very good reason to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually employed some residents to be kind of the, they set up this tent at the front where um, they've got the gates closed and anyone that pulls up, they talk to them and, and find out if they need to be there or not. So that created a new job opportunity that actually has become a social <laughs> space as well. There's always several people hanging out there in the security tent. And last um, I heard, they have had zero COVID cases the entire time. That is wonderful. So one of the things I was wondering is, you know, as as you've interviewed these people, are there any sort of personal stories of, of residents or their experiences that you can share with our listeners to be able to help to like picture picture this, picture life in Community First Village? There was one woman that I spoke with and she, you know, she had been homeless, had been sort of estranged from her family. And one of the things that when I interviewed her and heard about her experience, the thing that that really came up again and again was the way that she has found family at Community First Village. And that includes, mm -hmm. you know, with with Alan and Trisha Graham, who are kind of the founders who she almost would speak about as like parent figures now that they've really oh. adopted her. And she has this kind of boundless trust in them and and that they will help look out for her and take care of her. Um, but also that sort of this forged family that they've made on site with all of these relationships between individuals. And, you know, this woman that I spoke to, you know, I think I asked her a little bit naively um, how long she planned to stay at Community First Village. And, you know, and she, she looked me straight in the eyes and said, like, I will live here until I die. You know, like, like I'm not going anywhere else. Like she said, if, you know, if Alan and Trisha leave, maybe I'll go with them. But like, otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm here. This is my community. This is my home. And that's something that I think is really, really beautiful and, and really wonderful that they've set up the community in this way where it's not, it's not viewed as transitional housing. It's not supposed to be a stepping stone to help people get back on their feet and get into some other quote unquote normal living situation. Yeah. Like this is, this is the community that people want to be in and want to stay in. Really amazing to see. I think it's something that, you know, a lot of us wish we had in our communities and our neighborhoods. You know, I certainly don't have the same quality of relationships with my neighbors that I see that people at Community First Village have. I was thinking the same thing as what a precious, wonderful gift that is of, you know, community and of connection that don't we all wish that we could emulate that 
in our own lives and in our own communities. So I just wanted to um, take a moment and sort of see if there's anything else that I know that you're involved in a whole lot of other things. And um, if there's something else that you think is, you know, really important to mention. A couple of years ago, worked with some other folks here in Austin to start a leadership program for architects in Austin that's explicitly mm-hmm. focused on increasing equity and leadership in our profession. And this grew out of a lot of conversations that we were having years ago around a women in architecture exhibit that came to Austin. And um, one of the organizers of that exhibit challenged me with the question of, you know, hey, if we raise a bunch of money for this exhibit, what should we do with it to help women in architecture in Austin? And that sent us down this whole road and a lot of really great conversations. And the thing that we really saw was the gap that women experience you know, between going to architecture school, getting licensed, and that really there's a big drop off when you look at advancement to who is leading firms, who's winning design awards, you know, who's getting the recognition and the promotion Mm -hmm. to really help lead the work that we all as designers are doing. And how can we help create more diverse leadership in our profession? And really, that's in service of a bigger goal, which is as designers, we're shaping the built environment that affects our entire community. And when we do that with a group of people who don't represent our entire community, we're probably missing a lot of opportunities and ways that the design could serve those people the best. And so, you know, to me, that's kind of part and parcel of the bigger conversation about how do we take everything that we're doing and do it really well and do it in a way that does service to the people that it's serving and that justifies all of the resources that got put into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think it's hard to do that without diversifying our leadership. And so that program has been our effort to, to start or help work on that here in Austin. And it's, it's just finished its third year. We just accepted the class for next year's group, which will be the fourth year. So it's been awesome. amazing to watch many, many people go through that program and then watch them become more involved as leaders in their firms, as leaders in our local AIA chapter. Um, so I think we're we're just starting to see the the fruits of our labor on that and hopefully we'll continue to see it for many years. You know, a lot of the leadership programs that I hear about are really kind of around maximizing that single individual's like, okay, how do you project manage or how do we, you know, do business development or, you know, financing and all of that's really important. But like what you're talking about is how do we, you know, help to create the leaders that can um, lead the way for transformational change. And I think when you said high quality, better design, and I, and I think that like in your statement, it's sort of implied, but I think that's important to say, Yes, and that what that means is human-centered and equitable and in service of the greater, you know, human condition, not um, solely that it is um, aesthetically pleasing, although, you know, of course that's important. You know, we're, we're, we're not building buildings just to look at them. We're not building buildings just to show how creative we can be. We're building buildings to solve a problem and to serve a need, and that need is generally for the people who are going to experience those buildings. And so the more that we can engage with and understand and, you know, really dig into what those needs are and make sure that the building serves it, the better. 
you know, all of us moving forward need to be thinking about in all of our designs, what are the social impacts? What are the environmental impacts? And how do we get more and more of the good and less and less of the bad? If there's something that you wish more people knew around designing for social connection um, and social health in the built environment, um, like what do you wish people would use to inform their design decisions? I think the biggest thing is, you know, being a really good listener, being a good, good observer of the world around you and the ways that people are interacting. You know, every design is hopefully building on the body of knowledge that we already have as designers and hopefully allows us to get better and better at those things. But it, I think it's naive to think that any one building or any one designer is going to solve that and come up with the perfect answer to any question. And so, you know, I think it's all about communication and checking in on those things and really clearly articulating what the goals are and, and being able to um, talk to everybody involved to make sure that those goals are met. All right. Well, Shelby, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your time and your story and the story of Community First Village with us. It has been such a joy to talk with you and I really appreciate everything. So thank you. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.